Open up your Bibles. We're going to be kind of jumping all around again because we're going to be doing a uh, kind of a kind of kind of a topical series throughout the summer. Obviously, we're going to be talking about important issues. And before we do that, I want to talk to you about like a foundational issue. We started talking about the Bible last week, and I want to talk a little bit more about why I believe that the Bible is the authoritative, reliable sufficient Word of God. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, my aim is very simple. That, that's, my, that's my goal. That's, that's what I'm shooting for. And, and the reason why I'm shooting for this, because it's, it's so important to kind of, um, kind of establish, establish what truth is these days. Um, people like to quote uh, polls, and, you know, 98% of polls mean nothing, so it's, that's, that's the way it goes. But... Um, but we live in a time that's just kind of uh, very relative, you could say. Uh, this is a poll that was taken by the Barna Poll Group in 2002, so basically when you were all born, or maybe the year before you were born, I don't know. But this is the world you were born into, and it says um, 64% of adults believe the truth is relative. Truth is relative. Um, 83% of teens said truth is relative. Truth just, it depends on, it depends on whose, whose truth it is. Um, a more recent poll, 2016, seems a little bit better, but they, they, they asked the question, how do, where do you base truth? Do you base truth in some sort of ultimate standard or revelation, or do you base it in your personal experience? And 57% of adults stated that they determine truth based on, well, their experience. You know, this, this is true because I, I, I experienced it. If I didn't experience something for myself, it is not necessarily true. Um, and teens, there are 74% of teens said that they thought truth was based on experience and nothing else. So that's the world we live in. So I can't just say, hey, this is what God's Word says when, when, when that's the world we live in. So I want to make a few arguments, and, and I feel like my argument is going to be very straightforward, and this is going to be my argument. If God is who he says he is, or if God is who he is and who he reveals himself to be, God's word is authoritative, reliable, and sufficient for you today. That, that's my simple argument. That's my simple argument. So let's, let's kind of work through it. Uh, really, uh, let's start off with the claim of authority. The, the claim of authority. If you're taking notes, you can write, write this down. What does God's word claim to be? Um, well, no one upon reading the Bible, upon reading the Bible, would ever conclude that the Bible isn't claiming something significant about itself. The Bible claims to have ultimate authority in our world and in your life. Jesus, in John 17, 17, he doesn't just say the Word of God is true. He says the Word of God is truth. There's a difference between those two words. Uh, to say the word of God is true to mean it's, it's, it's factually correct, it's, it's reliable, which it is. But to say it's truth, that means God's word is the highest standard. It is truth itself. That's what Jesus says. But let's look at the claim of authority. Um, the Bible assumes authority. It demands respect, you could say. Um, and that is because the Bible is wrapped up not in the men who wrote it, but the Bible is wrapped up in the God who inspired it. 
who, who governed the writing process. We'll look at that a little bit later. But who, what do we know about this God? You can write down this reference. 1 Samuel 15.29. You should look it up later. And you should read the whole chapter too because it's a great chapter. But 1 Samuel 15.29 says this, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he, that is God, is not a man that he should have regret. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God is reliable. God is consistent. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. James 1.13-17 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there is no evil in God. There there is no bent in God, no wrongdoing in God. As a matter of fact, James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hey, if something is coming to you from God, particularly a written word that does not change. It is not only good, it is perfect because of who God is, right? That is what Scripture assumes. And we also find out something else about Scripture. Scripture just assumes authority, yes, but it also tells us um, Scripture is inspired, or, or theologians say it is inspired and superintended by the Holy Spirit. So, the Bible wasn't just God speaking to man and man writing it down. The Bible was God controlling the thoughts and the processes and the writing of men who wrote, using their minds, using their skill. But throughout that entire process, Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit was superintending, which is a big word that basically just means, hey, God uh, was controlling and guarding the process. So everything in God's Word is good and perfect and true. Here's a few verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is inspired, or you could probably better translate it, breathed out by God. All Scripture is from God, is of divine origin. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Second uh, Peter one twenty one. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we see that that controlling process. And and one theologian says this: this this verse shows that that God's word is not just man's word, man's best effort to think their way to God. It's not just man's experiences about God. Matter of fact, earlier in that very passage, Peter himself says, hey, we had a lot of great experiences, but we had something more sure, the prophetic word. It is God, the Spirit, carrying men along, controlling. It wasn't just one man. One man. It was probably a little over forty writers who wrote over a course of fifteen hundred years. Most of whom never really met each other, but they all wrote under the inspiration and the power and the control of one Holy Spirit. Therefore, their testimony is marvelously um, united. Um, and then Psalm nineteen nine says this about God's word: God's word is true and righteous altogether. So when you talk about the character of God's word, first you've got to think about who God is. Is there fault in God? Is there wrong in God? Can God lie? No. So what does that tell us implicitly 
logically, with our heads, you guys are smart. What does that tell you about something that he would say is righteous and true altogether? It would tell you that this word of God is perfect, right? It would tell you that this word of God is righteous altogether. And that is what we find. Uh, God's word attests uh, its own authority. Obviously, I've read these verses. Isaiah, here's some more. Isaiah 48, it's eternal. 2 Timothy 3.16, we talked about that. It's inspired. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5, it says, every word of God proves true. You could say it is infallible. It is unable to error. Um, 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1.21 talks about it being without error. We talked about that. And then Revelation 22.18-19 talks about it being complete. So according to Scripture's own testimony, and according to the argument of who God is himself, Scripture is your authority. It is the ultimate authority. It's not just a book that contains a few true things here and there. It is truth, right? Now, some of you are really smart, and you're probably going to say, David, there is a huge logical fallacy that you just committed right here. That's circular reasoning. Of course the Bible's going to say it's true, right? I mean, does you, you, you go into a barber shop, right? And, 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 the, and the barber tells you what? Wow, you could really use a haircut, right? It's, it's, it's playing in its own favor to argue for its truth. Well, in a sense, yes, it is circular reasoning, but let me just tell you right now, when you're dealing with arguments about ultimate authority, you are ultimately dealing with arguments that are kind of circular in their reasoning. Matter of fact, people, people are okay with this as long as you're not talking about the Bible, right? People say this all the time. My reason is my ultimate authority because that seems most reasonable to me. That is circular reasoning, right? Uh, logical consistency is my ultimate authority because that seems logically consistent to me, right? Um, or you could say this, I know that there cannot be an ultimate authority because I do not know any ultimate authority. Well, you're just, you're placing your knowledge as ultimate. But when you're dealing with ultimate truth, you're going to come to a point where, hey, there's no higher authority. There is no higher authority, so the Bible has to affirm itself. It would be wrong not to do this. Um, uh, question, the question you should ask about ultimate truth is not maybe circular reasoning, but what you should ask is, hey, do I trust this source? Do you really trust your mind, your logic, your reasoning? Do you, more than God? Do, do I trust this source? How, how does my view of ultimate truth relate to and, and kind of deal with the problem of evil in our world. Because we do have evil in our world. We do have evil in ourselves. We, we, do, have, we do have problems with motivation in our soul. How, how does your worldview and your view of ultimate truth really deal with that? But maybe, maybe you're really smart, and maybe you're asking another question, but hey, God, why, why, why didn't God have, you know, an authoritative witness to come and, you know, testify that his word is true. That would be helpful. I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I disagree with the word of God being authoritative. I'm just saying it would be kind of helpful if God, you know, sent an angel or somebody from heaven to tell me that God's word is true. 
Yeah, you'd be right. That would be very helpful. And you're in luck because God actually did just that as well. Uh, he sent he sent one witness that proved to be the second person of the Trinity because he performed all sorts of signs and, and wonders and miracles, healed people, and he rose himself from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent from heaven. And a lot of people want to make something of Jesus that he's not. A lot of people want to say Jesus is saying things that he doesn't say. A lot of people really jump on Jesus and say, hey, look at this. Jesus was a social justice activist, therefore I should be one. A lot of people say and assume to say, hey, Jesus said, well, he's on earth. Hey, all of this other revelation that you've heard about God and about how mean he is and how angry he is, it's not true. Just listen. Listen to my words. Just read the red letters in your future Bibles. That's, that's what Jesus said. Or at least that's what people want to say Jesus said. But actually, when you look at Jesus, you see the, act, uh, the absolute opposite testimony. Jesus affirmed the whole of the Old Testament. If you're wanting to write down verses to study later, look up Luke 24, 44. Jesus says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they all bear witness to me. They're all true. He uses all of these things to argue for his existence. This is a threefold division, very common in his day to refer to the whole of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus viewed the law or the words of Moses as the words of God. Remember what we talked about? About uh, like how the Holy Spirit superintends or controls the process? Jesus said, hey, the Holy Spirit did that with Moses. He viewed Moses' words as the word of God. Jesus viewed the psalmist's words or, or the psalms as written by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look up Matthew 12, 35-35. Sometimes uh, Jesus also not only did he affirm the Old Testament as a whole, but also the writing process, how the Holy Spirit inspired the writers. He also he had this annoying tendency of mentioning historical characters that were in the most you know unbelievable historical situations. Like for example, he mentioned Adam. And he talked about Adam as though he was a real historical man. Oh man, that, that really hurts people's evolutionary views. He mentioned Jonah, and not only did he mention Jonah, he had the audacity of mentioning that Jonah was in the whale. Come on, Jesus, could you have picked an easier reference in the Old Testament? Jesus had this, just this problem with assuming the historical reliability and the authority and the inspiration of the word of God. He even predicted that the future writers of the New Testament would do so by the Holy Spirit. Look up John 16, 13. Jesus affirmed, affirmed the Bible. And, and now some people would say, ah, yeah, but Jesus was just kind of in, in, in affirming them kind of as you know, just a general, a general truth from God. A, a truth from God that, you know, you kind of had to say, we got to pick and choose what's true here. Uh, but Jesus also had this other annoying habit of like saying things like, not one dot, not one check, not one period, not, not one apostrophe is going to be removed from the Word of God. All of it is inspired by God. Read uh, Matthew five seventeen through 18. Jesus also, in making arguments, referenced the smallest verses, like in John ten thirty three through 36, and said, hey, 
And Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus assumed the authority of every single part of the Bible. Jesus, and all, he also predicted the inspiration of the New Testament. So here we have a man from heaven who was attested to us by God, who was received and seen by many witnesses, attesting to the authority and the inspiration and the reliability and the sufficiency of God's Word. That is the only argument I really need, if I'm going to be honest with you. If I'm going to be honest with you, that's all I need. That is all I need. But let's give a few more, just for fun, uh, just for giggles and laughs, you could say. Um, I'm not even going to talk about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. You'll have to come back next week, maybe, for Bobby. Um, uh, But we just must say, all to say, God's Word is authoritative in its claim. And now this leads me to my logic. Now notice, we not only need to talk about the Bible, but we also need to talk about the Bible the way the Bible talks about itself. The Bible doesn't say, hey, you've got to argue your way towards the authority of God. The Bible says, hey, you need to receive it by faith and a humble heart with a repentant spirit. That's what you need to do. You need to get down on your knees before God's word and say, God, this is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and reliable word in my life, and I'll take it by faith. That's how the Bible wants to be talked about. But let's, let's talk about it that way. Let's just assume that the Bible is reliable. What would we expect from a Bible that is authoritative and reliable? We, we would expect that it would hold up under certain tests, right? We'd expect that it would answer problems that we really have. And that's what the Bible does. Let's look at kind of our next point. We looked at the claim of authority. And now I'm going to look, if you guys are still taking notes, at the evidence of authority. Let's look at the evidence. Does the Bible support itself? Does the preservation of the Bible actually agree with the claim of the Bible? What evidences would you expect? Well, I would expect something that was tested. I would expect something that was refined by fire, right? I would expect a book that could be tested again and again and scrutinized again and again and always come out more valuable, more precious. That's what I would expect from the Bible. And, and that is actually what we find. Um, turn over in your Bible to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm, I'm going to try not to make you turn to a lot of places, but I want you to see what the Bible says about itself as we look at the evidence of authority. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. This is, this is this big, glorious psalm about God's glorious word and how it is superior to any other form of revelation. And yes, God has revealed himself to us in his creation, but, but he has perfectly revealed himself to us through the word of God and through his son, Jesus Christ. It says this in Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Do you see that? The Bible can be tested, and it is precious. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. It is like gold. The more pressure you put on it, the more precious it becomes. So let's look at some of the evidences for the authority. And let me just say really quick, I've studied the Bible for a very long time. And I've also studied, you know, 
the authority of the Bible, and I've studied the evidences of the Bible. And the more I study the Bible, the more I am convinced it gets only stronger the more enemies it attracts. It gets only stronger. That's what we see in the evidences for Scripture. I'm going to just outline a few, um, a few rigorous tests that the Scripture has been put under in the last 200 years or so. And I'm going to, I'm going to say that Scripture has passed these tests. And I'm going to say it on purpose. So first off, we see that Scripture passed the test of historical reliability. Now, maybe some of you have some things in your head that you're thinking, like, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about this. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this right now. The only argument people can make historically against the Bible is the argument of absence. Well, we haven't found that technically yet, so so the Bible's wrong, right? Uh, We haven't found that city yet, so the, the Bible is wrong, right? The only argument people really have against the Bible is an argument of absence or an argument of, hey, archaeology is only a fraction of 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 the things that we even pull out of a fraction of the dirt, you know? That's all that we have in archaeology. So people simply make arguments against the Bible based on evidence. Like, for example, for the longest time, critics scoffed at the historical person of David. They said he was probably, he was probably just a mythical creature, kind of like kind of like uh, how, how we just create myths around Pocahontas and things like that. So that's who David was. And then somebody had the audacity to uncover this thing called a Stella, which is like this, this brick that has a message on it. And it indicates that not only was David a king, but he was also a king over a famous nation. Ah, man. Uh, for the longest time, also, scholars were mocking, so to speak, the five books of Moses. They said, clearly these things were written hundreds of years after Moses by people that just were trying to, you know, kind of paint Israel in a good way. But then they found these ancient laws called the codes, the Code of Hammurabi, that had very similar covenant and writing structure to the law of Moses. And they're like, whoa, this adds a lot of reliability to the Bible. The Bible isn't just making up these covenants out of nowhere. Uh, for the longest time, uh, this is one of my favorites, people scoffed at the Bible, and their favorite argument against the Bible was, the Bible believes in the Hittite nation. If there was a nation like the Hittites, I think we would have found it by now. And then somebody had the audacity to uncover and discover the Hittite nation, which they have also discovered is probably about the size and importance of ancient Egypt. It was a huge nation, and they just haven't found it yet. So, once again, um, archaeology isn't really considered evidence. It's more like just, hey, hey, uh, here's here's just a here's just a helpful assurance or kind of a, a solidifying thing. And I'll also say this about the evidence of absence. Uh, the absence, uh, this is very confusing, so stay with me on this. This is what my uh, uh, professor told me at seminary. The absence of evidence when it comes to archaeology isn't the evidence of absence. It's just the evidence that you haven't uncovered uh, what you're looking for. So the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. You just think about that. Write that down and think about that all night. Man, what in the world does that mean? The absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. And basically, there is, no, there is no historical fact in the Bible that really holds to, holds to, that anybody can really hold against the Bible as the Bible being in error. Nobody has found a historical moment in the Bible that they can prove false. All they can say is, hey, we haven't found any proof for that yet. 
So, Scripture has passed the test of historical reliability. Scripture has passed also the test of of textual reliability. There's always these arguments against Scripture. Hey, they're corrupted. Hey, they've been diluted. Hey, church fathers and the church got them in their hands. You know, know, I read Dan Brown. I know what happened. The Catholic Church in the 12th century, they gathered all the manuscripts and they erased all the bad parts and they added their little doctrines in there. Well, textual evidence and and real tight scrutiny on the Bible with the text actually proves the opposite. We talked about this a little bit with Matthew, or with, sorry, with Mark 16, so I won't talk about it too long, but when you look at the manuscript evidence for the Old Testament, you see a strong case being made for preservation. You see a strong case for the fact that these scribes were careful and they were precise. Matter of fact, they would, if they made a mistake, sometimes burn the scroll and start all over again. That's how precise and careful they were. And we saw evidence of this with the Dead Sea Scroll discovery in 1947. Basically, just to summarize the Dead Sea Scrolls, how they were so important, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, the oldest manuscript we had for the Old Testament was around 1000 A.D., Okay, that's 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 pretty old, uh, but then but I mean obviously I mean that was kind of when the Roman Catholic Church was kind of in control. So hey, how much do we trust this Old Testament? And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and a lot of the manuscripts found in these caves in Judah uh, were dating from 250 BC to around 380. So these are a lot older manuscripts, and you know what they affirm to a shocking degree. They affirm that everything that we had at 1000 AD was pretty much what was written in the Old Testament around 300 BC. So there's a lot of record and evidence that, hey, these Jewish scribes, even unbelieving Jewish scribes around, you know, 800 AD, they carefully preserved the Word of God for us. So we are fairly certain that the Old Testament is well established. Matter of fact, in the, in the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, they found this whole Isaiah scroll. And just the whole scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. Serena and I actually saw it while we were dating once. She doesn't remember it, but I do. Or maybe she does. Uh, but we saw, well, how, how about that for a date, right, ladies? I brought her to see the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you, David. This is really great. Uh, but I took her out for a nice meal afterwards. But anyway, this Dead Sea Scroll is important because it's a whole scroll. And it only like has three, three variants in it from the, old, the, the newer scrolls. And these variants are just like spelling and scribal preferences. So we see a great witness of the preservation of the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, the, the question is a little bit different. We see the evidence for the New Testament in the plethora of documents that we find. There is no ancient document in history that comes close, comes close to the amount of evidence and weight we have for the New Testament. Not even close. Like um, Beowulf. They've got one manuscript for Beowulf. And nobody's arguing about Beowulf, by the way. Everybody thinks we've got Beowulf covered. Um, there's, there's, there's also... Um, I've read this before, but um, Herodotus's history has eight extant manuscripts to date, 
and the closest manuscript to the original, the, the closest copy to the original writing is about 1,300 years. By contrast, the New Testament, we've got, as of 2017, because they keep finding manuscripts, they have found 5,856 manuscripts, and they come, some of them come as close to 25 to 50 years within the original writing, and none of them are farther removed than 300 years. So we've got a ton of manuscript evidence, and I talked to you about this before. We also have we also have certainty in how quickly the manuscripts were copied and spread geographically. So we can, we can like trace, you know, hey, this one's way over here in Syria, and this one's way over here in, you know, Italy, and this one's over here in Egypt, and they agree to a shocking degree. And when, when a manuscript moves like that, it's not like they just made, you know, like, that, that meant it went through a lot of different editions and copies. And, and, there are some variants, as I talked to you about before, but, but none of them can be, uh, can be unexplained by comparing other manuscripts. And no major doctrines are ever in question when you compare the text of the New Testament. Or to say it this way, we are about 98% sure we know exactly what was written by the original pens of the apostles who wrote the New Testament. That is, far and away, far and away stronger than any ancient manuscript ever, ever. So, the scripture has passed the test of textual reliability and historical reliability. One more test. The scripture has passed the test of internal consistency. Once again, 66 books by over 40 authors written over 1,500 year period, most of whom never met each other, and they all agree marvelously. As a matter of fact, Bible verses predict things that will happen in the future, and they happen. Psalm 22 speaks of crucifixion long before it was invented. Isaiah 53 speaks so clearly about who Christ would be that Jewish people to this day read Isaiah 53 and are sure it is a New Testament passage. Read it sometime. There are over 350 prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled from the Old Testament in the New. That is internal concern consistency by 40 different authors. Um, in, in, short, in short, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, the word of God is not just the word of men. It is divine in origin. It is God-breathed and God-controlled and guarded and even kept. I'm going to I'm going to read this quote to you from this man, this really smart man, Vody Bauckham, and I would encourage you to write it down because it's a good quote. It's a good quote about the Word of God. It is this. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. 
The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. This is what I expect to find in the Bible, and this is what I find, if it is the Word of God. And, and we didn't even talk about the resurrection. We didn't even talk about the arguments for Christ. But it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Specifically, this quote is referring to the resurrection of Christ. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. You know what? Read that quote. Think about that quote so much that you start to memorize that quote. You know what? Vody Bauckham, um, he kind of constructed that quote in response to a professor that challenged him from Harvard and saying, hey, prove to me the Bible is reliable. And so he wrote this quote. Matter of fact, there's a great sermon online that you should watch by him that he breaks that quote down a little bit more. Okay, so we've seen the authority of the Bible. We've seen the reliability of the Bible or the support for the Bible. And last, I want to just say uh, really quickly the implication of authority. What is the implication of God's word being what it says it is? What is the implication? Or you could say this, uh, what does it mean to say, I believe the Bible? Maybe some of you here believe the Bible. Maybe some of you here have no problem with the authority of the Bible. Some of you here have no problem with the reliability of the Bible. But you have a huge problem with the implication of the authority and reliability of the Bible. Uh, what is the implication? Well, I'm just going to kind of hone in on one implication. And it's personal, and it's practical, and it's about you, right? If all of these things about God's Word are true. That also means God's word is sufficient for you today. It is what you most need today. God's word is sufficient. Now, really quickly, the sufficiency of God's word, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that God's word tells us everything that we want to know about everything. I, I'm not saying that it's telling you you shouldn't go to the doctor because you should just believe in God. That's not what the sufficiency of God's Word is talking about. I'm not saying that the sufficiency of God's Word means you shouldn't think about God's Word or study God's Word to be approved. I'm not saying that the sufficiency of God's Word is saying you don't have to respond to God's Word. You have to respond to God's Word. But what the sufficiency of God's Word means in your life is, hey, you saying the Word of God is everything I need today to live an upright and holy and God-honoring life today. That is what the sufficiency of God's Word means. God's Word is sufficient for your life, for sight, right? It helps you see the world as it really is. It helps you look at the riots that are around us. It helps you look at the unrest around us and see what's really going on. The Bible helps you see what really matters. God's kingdom really matters right now. How I respond to Christ really matters right now. The Bible is sufficient for sight. In the same way, so the Bible is sufficient for salvation. This is what it says in 2 Timothy 3.15. It is able to save you. It is sufficient also for sanctification. I've been quoting 2 Timothy 3.16 all night, but read it anyway. What does it say? 
What does it say? It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Then verse 17 says this. Why? Why is it this? It's so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient for your sanctification. So, when you deal with problems like maybe problems in your head or problems in your heart or worries or doubts or maybe anxiety or you, you, go to, you go to the hospital, which you should go to. You go to a doctor to evaluate situations maybe in your thinking or in your mind. The first place you should go to is God's Word. It is sufficient. It actually claims to be sufficient to make you equipped and complete for sanctification. It is sufficient for sight, for salvation, for sanctification. It is sufficient for your stability. We, we talked about this last week, you know, being a light so you wouldn't trip and stumble. It gives you stability in this life. It is also sufficient for skill. It is sufficient for skill. Psalm 19, verse 11, says this, In keeping your word, there is great reward. You learn life wisdom, life skill. You can live well. Uh, God's word, to put it another way, is just, it's the most important document you possess. Why wouldn't you consult it in every area of your life? Even if it doesn't directly reference those areas, it still is the document that should control all areas of your life. It still should be the filter in which you think about all of God's world that he has given you. I'm going to read one final verse, and this is from Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. And people do not know, but this verse is actually about God's word. Because listen to it. It says, verse 5 of uh, Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How do you trust in the Lord? You trust in the Lord through his word. What happens when you trust in the Lord? Well, he'll make your way straight. You might not know exactly what you want to do, but you'll have the wisest choice ahead of you. And it will give healing to your flesh. We talked about that last week. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. That really is the question of sufficiency. Are you going to bow to the word of God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this evening. And we pray now as we go to small group that we would honor you. We would honor you um, in our speech, in our thoughts, in our questions. I pray that we would ask questions and gain greater understanding of your word even this night. I pray this in your name. Amen.